forever. Dog. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I'm getting pretty good at maneuvering myself on crutches. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm still dealing with adult acne, baby. <laughs> Wait, so how's your leg going? Uh, not great. I would say the recovery from my knee surgery has been rough. The reason I got the knee surgery was because I had a dislocation and I had two subluxations. And so I have so much trauma around my knee and around pain in my knee and feeling instability in my knee. And so yesterday for the first time, I started to like feel my patella like move in a way that felt very similar to like my subluxations and that freaked me the fuck out. And so then it like happened at physical therapy and I started to like cry. (laughs) I just wasn't able to do what I needed to do because in addition to all just like the physical pain, there's just like this mental barrier of like being so afraid that if I do the wrong thing that it will happen again, even though the surgery, the whole point was that it won't happen again. So it's like this really tough thing of like, I'm so sorry. Thank you. To like get better, I have to like put myself through a lot of like physical pain and then also like overcome a lot of like body trauma too, which is really hard. (laughs) What can you do? (laughs) No. Yeah. But I, I imagine that it's, it's hard because it's so fragile. Like it just feels really delicate and like, it's not something that you can control the pace of. So you're, you can't just go, okay, I'm going to be better on this day. Like that's, what's frustrating probably. It's also hard because it's like getting better is effort, right? It's not like, oh, when you're sick, you just rest and then Mm -hmm. you slowly get better. It's like I have to be actively doing all these exercises and enduring all of this stuff to make it better. And then there's like this pressure of like, well, if you don't do your exercises enough, if you're not pushing yourself hard enough at PT, then it's not going to get better. And guess what? That's just your fault. And so that's the part of it that like really trips me up where it's like, I don't want to, you know, I want to go at my own pace. I want to listen to the pain that my body is telling me, but I also feel like this level of like, but what if I'm not a good patient and then everything is delayed or I mess up my knee permanently and like, I never get mobility back, you know? So it's like, just this added like mental strain too of all of it. How is PT? Not great. It sucks. PT sucks and like (laughs) fucking blows. (laughs) You know, I have like a good main physical therapist, but you know, the second half of it, they just sort of like hand you over to like an aide or somebody who's not, they're not like licensed physical therapists. They're more like, I don't know if they're on their way or they're a different thing, but it'll be like, they just like yesterday, like told me to do this exercise. And I was like, I can't do that. Like, my leg isn't moving in that way yet. I can't lift my leg yet. Or like they think I should know things I don't know. Like even just like uh, me having to like be kind of like, I need your help to move my leg here. And like them not knowing that it's just like it's it's awkward. It's like awkward and like incredibly in- intimate yeah. right away where like I was like crying with this person I'd literally met like one second before. And like it's just. You know, and so it's also like it's like the worst part of the week because then you're also like in a lot of pain afterwards, too. I'm sure they're used to it. I'm sure they're also used to like worse patients than you. 
I don't know. I had to be like, oh, this person's impression of me is not the best. And then I was like, whatever. And whose impression at physical therapy <laughs> is the best impression of that? Right. <laughs> so onward and upwards. Yeah, some version. <laughs> <laughs> onwards and the same. Yep. Onwards and lateral. <laughs> well, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. So I want to read some uh, reviews, Apple reviews. If you leave us a five-star review, maybe we'll read it. Um, we haven't read them in a while, so there are some that I I really wanted to read. We also have a 4.7 out of 5, which to me seems high. <laughs> you don't think we deserve that? <laughs> I'm excited. Bad With Money only has a 4.5, so this is thrilling. Okay, so this is a review from Hey, It's Jude, and it says, Brutally Honest Review, which scared me. But then it said, this podcast is fantastic. Love the multiple segment format. Gabby and Allison really provide insight on different perspectives of life, and they both are white folks who acknowledge their privilege when talking about certain topics. Really appreciate that they touch on different sides of topics, too. Y'all are great. Thanks for the laughs, thoughts, and tears. Aww. And then this one I want to read from B. It says, Allison is smart and Gabby is hot, which thank you. That's what we've said to put uh, on the reviews. But this person said we should have Devin Price on the podcast. And guess what, B? You're going to be thrilled because we did have Devin Price on the podcast. <laughs> they have a book called Laziness Does Not Exist. And so what a great day for you, B, because if you go back and search, indeed, indeed, we have had them on the podcast. Also, this person, Dana019, said that you can leave a review on Spotify, too, which I forgot to mention. Yes, you can also leave reviews for us on Spotify. Uh, and they said, JBU is the best variety show in town. What town? Who knows? But yes, Spotify now allows you to leave reviews. So thank you for the reminder. So if you want to leave a review or follow us on Spotify, now you can. Yeah, when you guys leave reviews for us, it is actually like incredibly helpful. It helps us book bigger guests because, you know, the more reviews you have, the more just like credibility it seems like you have. So it lets us like expand our guest list. It also mm -hmm. just boosts it for more people to find it. And so it's like, if you want to show any support, that would be a huge, huge help. There's two more that I want to read, but all of these are really amazing. But one is from Shenanigans and it says 1312. Gabby ranks the episode 1312 every time because they don't fuck with cops, which is it's like a code for like, fuck the police. I'm not I wasn't doing it on purpose, but I really do love that that may have been a subconscious thing in my mind. <laughs> and then this one I want to read for Allison, which is from Kira Loa. And it says they hate Republicans. I remember one time a Republican left an angry review that Gabby and Allison read, read on the show because this show is anti-Republican and doesn't consider the rights views or something like that. Well, that's the exact reason I love the show. These amazing people have taught me so much through the years and always encouraged their listeners to practice growth. They are very self-aware and aware of their audience in a way most variety shows are not. I learn something new about the world around me with every episode and usually learn something new about myself too. If you're queer, mentally ill, or both, most likely both, you stand to gain something from JBU. If Gabby and Allison read this, thank you both for helping shape me into the person I can love and be proud of and that I know I can continue to work on improving and then a heart. Oh, my God. That was so beautiful. Love that one. Oh, that made me so happy. <laughs> well, hopefully this episode won't disappoint and will maybe be one of your favorites yet because I really love this discussion we had with our amazing guests. Yes, this week we're asking Aisha Barenblatt some tough questions about fast fashion. I feel like I learned so much in that conversation. And it also, 
I hopefully will help me reestablish a different relationship with my with my wardrobe in a positive way. And then later we're going to be talking all about changing your name, the implications of that, the decision making around that. But first, we have to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! M from New Jersey. M says, Hi, Gabby and Allison. I have a question about dating with a disability while not financially independent. Namely, will anyone want to date me if I have a disability and am not financially independent? For some background, I am 30 years old and in the process of applying for Social Security disability benefits. I do work part-time and am able to cover some of my expenses, but my parents help me a significant amount, and I still live with them, though I am trying to get on a list for affordable housing. I have depression, anxiety, ADHD, and a chronic physical illness that causes joint pain and fatigue. I am being treated for all of these things, and for the most part, I feel like my mental health is well-controlled. My issue is mainly my physical health. I deal with significant fatigue along with chronic pain, and I have trouble working more than around 10 to 15 hours a week. Despite this, I am an ambitious person who loves to be as active as possible. I am also a published writer and would like to eventually publish novels. I know that I'm funny, caring, and a good friend, but I feel like people will see my disability and my lack of financial independence as major red flags, and dating will be impossible. I also have only had one serious relationship and it was partially long distance, so I feel like that also counts against me. I live in a rural area and I'm a little socially anxious, so I feel like I don't get the kind of practice that other people got in terms of dating when I was younger. But I want so badly to get out there and meet people. I signed up for dating apps, but I'm often too afraid to actually set up dates, although that's partly because of the pandemic making things a bit more complicated right now. Should I just give up dating for the time being and hope I can improve my circumstances enough to be more dateable in the future? Will anyone want to date somebody like me who is not financially independent and has so many issues? I feel like I've done so much work on myself and really improved myself so much over the years, and I know that I am so much more than my circumstances suggest, but I feel like no one is going to want to deal with all of this baggage. Thanks so much for your incredible podcast. I look forward to it so much every week. Aww. Wow. Well, I mean, as Allison has said many times, one of the biggest things is not your current circumstance, but whether or not you're working on it. And like whether or not you are actively bettering yourself and whether or not you like love yourself and feel good about the things that you have to offer. And so generally, I mean, everything that you described sounds amazing. You know, you're a published writer, you're funny, you're caring. I think that there is a lid for every pot. I think maybe you should think about if you would want to date someone like you. And if you would, then amazing. I mean, would you would you write someone off that had a disability? Then there must be someone out there in the world like you who wouldn't do that. It is tough in a rural area, I will say, because your your dating pool is smaller, which is why I don't think you should get off dating apps or, or online dating. I think that that might be your best bet just in terms of the people that are around. But if you feel that you have a lot to offer, if you feel that you've done a lot of work on yourself and grown, and if you feel that you are someone who 
has passions and goes after them. And, you know, I don't think I don't think anyone should judge anyone for living with their parents at this point, because that used to be a thing of like, oh, they still live at home. So they're a loser. But like we have gone through some of the worst economic times in life. And I'm not necessarily sure that even back in the day we should have been judging this. So also different cultures live with their parents. So like, I don't know, I feel like the whole living with my parents making me seem not financially secure or making me seem in some way like um, not not as good is like something we should all just take off the table. Yeah, I had a couple reactions to this. And I think a big one was that a lot of people are financially dependent on their parents in some way, right? Myself included. Like I recently moved into a house that my parents bought. And I'm paying the mortgage and I'm we're renting to buy and it's all of these things. But like it is very much me, you know, having support, financial support for my parents. A lot of people might have full time jobs, but still maybe their parents cover their car payments or maybe their parents help with the rent or they they cover the vacations for the families. You know, like I think maybe you're feeling it a bit more acutely because you are more financially dependent on your parents than some people, you know, but I think a lot more people are than we necessarily think or that necessarily talk about it openly. And why do we view that as a bad thing, right? Like we're families. Like if you are in the position to be able to help your children out, you know, I used to have so much guilt around it. And now I'm like, oh, well, if I was in my parents' position, I would do the same thing. We're, we're there to support each other. We're there to help each other. I also think you are doing something that makes so much sense, but you are fortune telling. You are assuming, you're mind reading, you're you are assuming how people are going to react without giving them the opportunity to react. And I get that because once you become involved with somebody, once you get excited about somebody, once they're real, then their potential rejection of you is going to be more painful than if you never even tried in the first place. But if you're not even letting yourself go on these dates, you're not giving people the opportunity to say, I totally get it. Everything about your circumstances makes sense to me. You know, like, if you have a chronic illness, you're going to need additional support. If you're struggling with a lot of, of mental health disorders, you're going to need to spend time addressing those disorders, which makes it hard to have a full-time job. Like nothing here feels like, oh, you're messing up or you're not in a place where you're ready for a relationship. It just seems like you have been in some really hard circumstances and you're doing what you need to do to take care of yourself. And you also have a wonderful support system which is a huge plus. I mean, who doesn't want to become part of a family where people help each other out and are there for each other? And, you know, and so I think it's really, it's deciding that you're willing to face this potential rejection, but also reminding yourself that everybody opens themselves up for rejection when they date. Everybody has things about themselves that they're worried that the other person is going to judge or not like or be afraid of or back away from. And I think that your stuff might be a bit more in your face, if that makes sense, right? Because it's like things we talk about right away. What are our jobs? What are our living situations? And other people's might be more things that someone would only uncover a few months into a relationship or once they really know somebody, you know? So it's scarier because you kind of have to put what you are worried about out there quicker. But give the people the opportunity to take that information and also... You learn so much information about somebody when you give it to them and how they react to it. Don't go into this as like, I just hope this person doesn't reject me. Go into it as how is this person take this information and are they good enough for me? 
Are they understanding enough for me? Are they compassionate enough for me? And so it's a two-way street. It's not you just hoping somebody says yes to you. It's you also having to say yes to somebody else. Um, and maybe that approach will will help. Mm-hmm. But Vetting them. Yeah, you you have every right to vet them as much as they have a right to vet you. You know, you're allowed to have standards. You're allowed to, mm-hmm. to have somebody react poorly and you go, never mind, I'm not interested. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And I think, you know, with, with disability, there there are so many that are invisible and there are so many that you couldn't find out about or know about unless you get to know the person or, uh, you know, you know yourself. So you're aware of all the things that go on with you. But you might meet someone and not, you know, talk about having ADHD until much later in the relationship or you might find out that they have some sort of invisible chronic illness. Like, I think this is much more common than people are open about. And like, you might see them on an app and just get like a picture perfect view of them and not realize that if you guys actually talked, you would probably maybe even have that in common or re- or some relatability, or maybe they have a parent or a sibling with like the similar disability that you have. Like you don't know what people's level of knowledge is or what you just don't know. You're like it saying I have these and everyone else is perfect. I think if you make put yourself out there, you're going to find is largely untrue. Yeah. And you also you have every right to go after what you want. You don't have to wait around for the perfect time because that time's never really going to happen. Always stuff going on. Uh-huh. We're always working on ourselves. We're always, you know, going through a bit of a struggle. And so I think starting that process of looking now like you deserve that and and living in the rural area of it all, allowing yourself to be a little more open, right? Allowing yourself to maybe start a long distance relationship or connect with someone online through like Twitter, even if they don't live in your state or, you know, like being in a rural area can really make dating. It is, it makes dating much more difficult and limiting, but so sort of allowing yourself for other opportunities and not necessarily the traditional route of you know, we talk and then two days later I can meet them for coffee because they live within five miles of me. You know, if you have to build a relationship with somebody who's maybe a little further away, that's okay too. Like these things that we hold on to that are so quote unquote traditional don't really serve us. And we just have to go about our lives in ways that actually make it better and more joyful and richer. And that might look a little different than the traditional dating model. Yeah. And maybe open yourself up to types of people that you wouldn't necessarily like maybe there maybe you're like I don't know about this on paper and then you go have a date with them and you're like oh they're actually like you know they're actually cool or whatever like I feel like when you talked about oh I didn't have as much practice it's like I don't know how much that matters but also like going you can't get practice unless you go on these dates you know maybe they're zoom dates maybe they're you know Dates where you're sitting across from each other at a park or something. I don't know. But maybe that actually takes the pressure off of it being so date date, you know, so like intense or whatever to get a little practice. And some people marry their high school sweetheart and never have experienced dating another person. Some people date tons of people. Some people go Mm -hmm. through periods of being single for years and then date again. Your past relationship history obviously has an impact, but I don't think that it it makes it so you can't have a successful relationship in any way. And if it makes you feel better, I just want to say I have been rejected in my life so many times. (laughs) Like rejection has been a huge part of my life. It's been a huge part of so many people who you love and respect's life. It's just part of the game. And I think kind of taking away the self-judgment from the potential of being rejected 
might make it a little less scary. We hope that that helped. Please keep us updated. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Aisha Berenblatt. Stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, we have Aisha Berenblatt, who is the founder and CEO of Remake, which seeks to mobilize citizens to demand a more just, transparent, and accountable fashion industry. Hello, Aisha. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh my God, thank you for being here. This topic is so fascinating. I mean, you know, we often don't think about who made our clothes or where they came from. And so I'm looking forward to diving in. Yeah, I mean, that's really the first question is what is fast fashion? So I would think of fast fashion as the same as fast food, right? It was sold to us as something that's cheap and easy and convenient. It was a really H&M and Zara that brought this novel concept of you see something on the runway, we're going to knock it off, we're going to give it to you really quickly and in an affordable way. Sounds great, right? But much like fast food, once you look under the hood, you're like, oh, well, this is causing us diabetes and making us sicker. And it turns out it's not good for people and the planet. And so fast fashion is the same way. You know, there is a very human cost to making our clothes as cheaply as they come to us today. And that cost is mostly on women, women of color, because most of our clothes around the world are made by young women in their early 20s. And the cheaper our clothes come to us, the more her salary is shrinking. And there's less and less that she can afford to have a life of dignity. And then on the planet side, did you all know that polyester is basically oil? So what we have is this dependence on plastics and the fossil fuel industry to make our clothes so cheap. And not only is that devastating in terms of extraction of oil, but then it sits in landfills for hundreds of years because polyester doesn't really break down. So it's a hot mess. So can you explain a bit? There's two elements here that are interesting to me. One is the workers' rights and one is climate change. But I want to start with workers' rights. So how is it operating now and what can be better? Yeah. So, you know, the worker rights side of this is really personally something that's important to me. I'm Pakistani-American. I grew up, you know, in Pakistan, which is one of the bigger producing nations, and really got to see away from the glitz and glamour of the fashion industry, dusty factories, mills. And, you know, to your question, it's like, how is it produced? Well, you know, here's a stat that'll boggle your mind. Today, we produce 100 billion units of clothes a year. To put that in perspective, there's not even 8 billion people on the planet, right? So we're just producing things very, very quickly. And most of that ends up in landfill within the first year of production. And so the only way for clothes to be built with that type of rapid obsolescence is it has to be dirt cheap. You know, in our generation, we've suddenly started treating clothes as disposable. And so what that means is that the women on the factory floor and the reason, you know, a lot of factory managers will tell you we prefer to hire women is, oh, they're more docile. We can make them move faster. <gasps> it's just so dehumanizing, right? The amount of time I've spent in factories where 
she's working 10, 11, 12 hours a day and not making a living wage. You know, she is taking home a salary that likely maybe affords her two meals instead of three. And in the pandemic, when women who made our clothes were not just doing that, but also making our protective gear and our masks, she was deemed an essential worker, but still making less and less, being put on short-term contracts so that, you know, you don't have to pay into social security. And one of the other things that's often not talked about is the amount of gender-based violence that's so endemic in the fashion industry. You know, you, we hear this from models and the way fashion is marketed to us from retail workers. But one piece of the hidden puzzle here is the women who actually bring our fashion to life. You know, it's this perfectly gendered and racialized way that clothes come to us where everyone's supervisor and up happens to be male and everyone on the factory floor is female and she's working on a quota system and verbally and sometimes physically assaulted to just work faster and faster because we have decided that the one variable cost to make our clothes this cheap is her pay. And so, you know, I don't want to depress you all completely because we have seen some positive inroads. You know, our community, it's incredible community of citizens, you know, rallied to get workers to be paid during the pandemic. All said and done, we unlocked some $22 billion from a viral pay-up campaign to reverse order cancellations. So we really are seeing, you know, people rising to recognize that if you care about women's empowerment, you care about gender equity, then you have to care about these issues and demand better from the fashion industry. Part of the problem is people can't afford nice clothes, right? And so for a lot of people, these like cheaper brands are maybe their only outlet to have newer clothes. So what, how do we kind of combat that? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this question, you know, because I think the fast fashion industry wants us to believe that, like essentially <laughs> pit working people, people who can't afford clothes against, you know, women on the other side of the supply chain. And the truth is, if you look at the volume of fast fashion that we're consuming, right, it's not really an affordability question. You know, it's TikTok and it's Instagram and it's us believing that we just need that one piece of clothing for the gram or for the photo and then we're going to throw it away. You know, you look at the data and it's really clear that it has more to do with the disposability of fashion and the amount of seasons that we have and the fact that the industry keeps marketing to us that we need more, more, more. And, and that suddenly, rather than having classic fashion, it's about chasing one trend after another. You know, there are so many people in our community from all economic brackets. We participate in something called a No New Clothes Challenge for 90 days over the summer. And one of the things that a lot of our community shares is how much money they save doing that when they're not chasing fast fashion that falls apart anyways. And, you know, there are ways. I haven't bought something in five years. You can thrift. You can swap. You can take better care of your clothes. And I think, you know, even if you are, if fast fashion is all you can afford, you can still use your voice to uplift the voices of garment makers, participate in our campaigns and demand better for her. Because truthfully, our planet and her life cannot sustain the way that we're consuming. And, you know, a $5 t-shirt, the price of exploitation is baked in that. You know, clothes simply cannot cost as little as they do today. Yeah, it's interesting how much we're we're told that we need to buy and the way that fashion 
works and how easy, how susceptible, you know, I am to buying something that I saw on Instagram and then being like, I don't even want this. And the things do fall apart. I think like one thing that's been cool is that if you don't buy new stuff, you can kind of force yourself to figure out what your own style is and and then what you are uh, styling things differently from what you already have, I think is like a huge people don't want to do that necessarily. But I think that it is like an interesting challenge to not buy something new, but rather figure out different ways to wear the stuff that you already have or force yourself to think outside the box to like, what do I actually like and look good in versus like what will match whatever the style is of the day? Completely. And, you know, I think we're seeing a break in some of that, you know, where it's like, we don't want to be sheep that all look the same. Remember in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was just like, this is the trend and everyone's going to wear it. And it's just been cool to see some of the innovation around, you know, I find a thrifted piece or a favorite ethical piece and I'm going to rock it over and over again. You know, the capsule collection people. There's a whole host of people who are like, ah, fashion is cluttering my life. I'm going to Marie Kondo my closet and going to wear little. And it's amazing how much, not just from a money, but time standpoint, you just, it's like a release, right? To say, I don't have all this stuff cluttering my closet that doesn't feel good on my body that actually is just weighing me down and depressing me. You know, I think we don't talk enough of the mental health aspects of buying and buying cheap stuff actually leaves us thoroughly depressed. There's that sort of one hit of, you know, you buy it and you feel good for a little while. And then it's just, you know, reams and reams of things to comb through every day to decide what you're going to wear. So for me, it's been quite freeing to own fewer, better things. Yeah, I feel like for me, it's really hard for me to find clothes that are comfortable and that I feel like I look good in. And then I'll find a couple of pieces, but then I feel this pressure to not wear the same thing every day or like you know even just like in that we record parts of this podcast and I'm like oh well I have to be wearing something different than in the last video that we recorded of this podcast or like oh no like when I went to dinner with this friend was I wearing the same outfit but like who cares (laughs) like if I like the outfit and it's clean I should be able to wear it as much as I want to you know, part of this is it's really not our fault. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry that's marketing to us that we need more and more. If the business model is built upon clothes falling apart, the only way to keep feeding the fast fashion machine is to keep buying more stuff, you know. And this is where we do some engagement with influencers and celebrities where it's like, can we just make rewear not something to be ashamed of? You know, can you show up on the red carpet wearing the same thing, you know? And how do we just normalize rewear as something that it should be? Because if you think of the amount of labor, you know, we've done the math, there's something like a hundred pair of human hands touches a pair of clothes before it gets to us. And then think that we're going to wear what three, four, five times and throw it away. It's unconscionable because, you know, making our clothes is high skilled work. And whether that's that Burberry coat or that $21 Forever 21 jacket, the amount of labor is the same. And and so we should respect that and, and take good care of what we have, you know? I like trading with people. Like I like trading clothes with friends of mine and and that way you're not rewearing the same thing. You're, 
you know, you're wearing it differently or you're trading it with, you know, somebody. And I think men can wear a lot of the same stuff. And I'm thinking of office corporate environments where men might have like one or two suits and they wear those. And then there's more pressure for women to have new stuff all the time, which sucks. (laughs) (laughs) It so sucks. I think Michelle Obama said that in her book, you know, how like, oh, Barack gets to wear the same suit over and over again. Meanwhile, I have everything that I wear is so scrutinized. And, And we do this, right? Where this is the thing that's mind boggling to me. It's women's wear that essentially keeps this trillion dollar industry profitable. And then it's models who, in all the body image stuff, think about just their own short-term contracts, working conditions. The women who market as fashion are so badly treated. And then you add to, well, the people who are actually making the clothes are also women who are mistreated. And then this becomes a gender justice issue of our time because you look at, you know, 60 of the top fashion brands and retailers control like 90% of the industry's profits. And it's just a few white men at the very top who are reaping in all the profits while we are feeding this machine, you know. So that's why I think it really is time for radical disruption. And, you know, we've talked a lot on the human rights side of things for people who very much care about our climate. The amount of clothes we are putting out in the world, like our earth can't sustain it. You know, we don't have the natural resources to just keep putting this volume of clothes out that then end up in our waterways and bleached into our soils. And, you know, the plastic we now know gets into the ocean. And so then we're consuming a credit card worth of plastic as human beings. It's just the the mess uh, continues on and on on the environmental side. I guess I just, uh, because I've become so cynical about capitalism and how businesses work, it's like, how do we make change? Like, how do we at the same time get these workers paid better while while we're also buying less. I am so glad you asked that because, you know, it's like we can't have one more bad news conversation, right? Like there's so much to worry (laughs) about in the world. And if I was just constantly telling you, look how horrible this is, you'd just be like, oh, Aisha, let's stop talking. This isn't fun anymore. And that was really, you know, the founding story of Remake. I wanted to build something inclusive and accessible, you know, first to educate and help you all look under the hood and connect the dots between, hey, I care about women. I care about climate. How does this relate to my clothes? But then what do we do about it? And really what we do about it is that our power as a collective, as citizens, really does matter. You know, at the start of the pandemic, we weren't buying any clothes. Like everyone was buying tops, maybe some athleisure pants, but not very much. And so the industry panicked and canceled all these orders thinking no one's going to notice. We're all wrapped up in the pandemic. And I was astonished by the solidarity, you know, of unions and retail workers, but everyday citizens. We wrote petitions, we trolled them on Instagram and on Twitter. And it turns out that now you have this democratized access to companies, right? A lot of them took notice and reversed this decision. Big corporations, you know, Levi's and Gap decided to pay up. And it was really through the power of us holding them accountable. You know, right here in California, we just passed a bill which became law on the 1st of January. It's the Garment Worker Protection Act, which will now assure that some 45,000 mostly Latina women in California who are making our masks and making our clothes for like a $3, $5 take-home pay will now make the minimum wage of $14. 
it's not enough, but it's something. And, you know, again, it was really uh, the power of citizens coming together to get government to do their job. So I think passing smart policy, campaigning, knowing that our voices are as valuable as our wallets to, to be heard, those are all the ways that we can show up in this movement. Let's say we all stop and they close the factories. Where What happens to these people? It's such an important question because, you know, so much of fashion keeps chasing wherever is cheaper and cheaper. You know, it's like when China became too expensive, a lot of our fast fashion moved to Cambodia and then to Myanmar, where, by the way, fast fashion continues to produce even when you've got a military coup. And, you know, one of the places it's like, really, that's what you're going to do. And, you know, Ethiopia is one of the last frontiers now where it's like the wages are so low that that's where the fashion industry has gone. So the industry doesn't have a very good track record, right, of like staying in communities and investing in them. They just sort of pack up and leave to wherever is cheaper. But this is where, you know, with automation coming, with you know, the thrifting market growing with us thinking of rental and other ways of fashion, with us thinking of the metaverse and digital fashion, it almost becomes more important than ever for us to be advocating for living wages because here is a generation of women that have been making our clothes that have been left no better off. So now I think of it almost as a race against time to afford her a living wage so hopefully she can responsibly transition out of this industry, because the industry is not going to do that on its own. You know, its track record is just leave. They left the United States, they left Mexico, and then onward they went, you know? Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. Is it a good marketing strategy as customers become more aware of things to have better policies, to be able to say that they pay their workers a living wage, to be able to say they're more sustainable? You know, is that a way to appeal to these companies to say, like, this will be good PR for you? A hundred percent. But, you know, there is also what we lovingly call a lot of greenwashing in this industry. So every time we educate you know, citizens to care about these issues, then fast fashion starts to co-op those issues that hmm. you care about. You know, we love to say, you know, solidarity is not a T-shirt. So, you know, you care about women's rights or you care about climate change. Don't just buy the slogan on the T-shirt and commoditize your value system. Do something about it. You know, so you suddenly have a lot of fast fashion that talks about sustainable product. But what we pick up from people is a lot of confusion. It's like, is polyester really good? I don't know. You know, is organic cotton really good? But what about if it's coming from the Xinjiang region, which is essentially modern day genocide? So these issues are so complex that often, you know, what we do, we publish a brand accountability report. And as a watchdog organization, we take no money from the fashion industry, but it's a way for you to discover who are the truly ethical sustainable brands. And, you know, Newsflash, they're smaller guys. It's often buy local, still stands, you know, because the more complex your supply chain gets, the more far-flung it gets, the harder it is for you to understand what the working conditions are like. And, you know, for a lot of the bigger fast fashion brands, unless they radically change their business model, it's very hard to believe that they're truly trying to make inroads. You know, H&M has a sustainable capsule collection now, and so does Zara, and so do all these brands. But, 
you know, if you are producing more fast fashion than ever, and then sort of dabbling in the ethical, sustainable movement, all you're doing is still trying to sell us more stuff. It's not as though you are radically deciding that most of your workers will be paid better or that you're going to reduce your total amount of output to deal with climate change. So I'm very cautious about sustainability claims. And, you know, part of our job is to debunk it, to make it easy for you to know who are the good guys and who are just making it up. You talked a bit about like nylon and polyester. Can you explain a bit more about the adverse effects in terms of climate change and what actually is happening? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think we often make a connection when we're thinking about climate change and what would we divest from and thinking about fossil fuels, we think about transportation, right? We think about the airlines or we think about our cars. But what we don't think about is that the only way for fast fashion to grow the way it grows is with a lot of focus on polyester. You know, if you go into your closet today, you'll be hard pressed to find a lot of things that are made from virgin cotton, you know, 100% cotton. It's a lot of it is polyester blend because that is a cheap way to make a lot of clothes. Turns out polyester doesn't feel great on the body. I promise you, if you try something that's silk or cotton versus polyester, you'll feel the visible difference on your skin. But then when it comes to polyester, it doesn't really break down at end of life. So part of what we've been doing, you know, in the United States is we send off these problems. We ship these clothes overseas to Ghana and other places, disrupting and destroying their local markets. But we have countries around the world saying we don't know what to do with this reams and reams of what is essentially now garbage. You know, it's ending up in landfills. It's ending up in our oceans. So that's one of the the problems at fast fashion is that the more we buy, we are continuing this dependence on oil, you know, and and that, as we know, is, is something that we have to divest from if we want our future generations to have a planet to be on. I think the other thing that we often don't realize is that microplastics shed. Right. So when you're washing your polyester clothes, we now know that some of that little plastic is then shedding and getting into the oceans and then the fish are eating it and then we are eating it. And so then suddenly we have this plastic dilemma as well. And so here's the classic example of like greenwashing in the fashion industry, because you will have brands saying that, you know, this is sustainable because we've recycled plastic bottles and put them in your T-shirts and your shoes. And you're like, yeah, but that's still plastic and that's not going to break down and it's going to end up in our ocean. So how is this sustainable again? You know, the fact that we're trying to make so many clothes so quickly means that we turn to plastics and polyester. In terms of brands that are actually doing the work, what are some of those and what are they doing? Yeah, so as I said, you know, we rate the top 60 fashion brands, you know, beloved sustainable ones, but also well-known fast fashion and retailers and look under the hood on how you're doing. And big headline is for the very big players not making enough progress in terms of their climate commitments or their human rights. You know, there's something less than 6% of the 60 brands that we looked at that pay any percentage of their workers a living wage, you know, and for most of them, even after setting science-based targets, they're producing so much that they're nowhere close to reducing their carbon emissions. But when we look at some of the rock star brands, it often is smaller, independently owned, 
it really disruptors in this space. You know, one of our highest scoring brands was Nazolo, for example. Oh. It's a, uh, yeah, and they, you know, they make really great shoes. I live in San Francisco. I do a lot of walking. I like their shoes for that. And they've made a commitment to pay a living wage, you know, up and down their factory. So that would be an example of a brand that's trying to do right. You know, there are some better known names like Mara Hoffman or Eileen Fisher. You can discover more on our platform remake.world. But I often tell people if the price tag is scaring you, don't feel like you have to buy your way into a sustainable fashion future, right? Let's think of ourselves as citizens first and consumers second. So you can be a part of our No New Clothes campaign. You can be a part of our campaigning to get garment workers paid. You know, we're currently running the worst wage theft campaign to get brands out of India to honor the minimum wage increase. So I think, you know, if it makes you feel good, just like organic food, and you want to buy some ethical pieces, power to you. But there are so many ways that you can use your voice to make a difference in this industry as well. Can we talk about thrifting? Because it shouldn't be controversial, but here we are, (laughs) where there's like this thing of, oh, you should just thrift. Like, okay, so one influencer that I follow posted a thing about promoting Shein. Everyone was mad. And then someone commented and was like, mama needs her cheap and affordable clothes. So whatever. And then some everyone underneath was like, just thrift, just thrift. Is that the answer in a lot of ways? I wish there was one magical answer. Right. And the way I like to think about this is almost like our food choices. You know, it's like, oh, I want to be perfect, but I'm not. So sometimes I'm going to cheat. Right. Maybe I'm going to have that glass of wine and that chocolate cake. And then tomorrow I'm going to think back about trying to cut sugar out of my diet. It's a journey. And I think it's the same thing with fashion. You know, there's no silver bullet and one particular answer. The reason I think thrifting has in some ways become a silver bullet that it shouldn't be is that if you go to some of the major thrifting stores today, all you're going to see is like racks and racks of Shein, right? Right. There's so much of that product out there. And so I like to say, well, the number one most sustainable thing you can do is just wear whatever you have. Or like you like to do, Gabby, you know, swap with your friends. I like to go shopping in my sister's closet. Like that is an example of much more sustainable behavior than feeling like, oh, I'll just get my short term fix by thrifting. Now, is a thrifted Shein better than going to the regular Shein site? Perhaps. Depends on how much you're buying, because otherwise you're still keeping up (laughs) that volume, you know, and not all thrifting is the same, right? Now you have these popular platforms with which you can be thrifting your clothes and think about the emissions of, you know, all that product going back and forth. So again, it goes back to being local and and going to more of your local charity shops and, and shopping there and supporting that from a local economy and job creation standpoint. So I'd say thrifting is a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the magical answer. You know, there's so many things we have to do. We have to push for smart policy. We've got to get the fashion brands to be paying workers fairly. We've got to get them to, you know, pay for the negative externalities on our planet. We've got to get government to do their job. And on a personal level, it's like, all right, you want to rent, you want to thrift, you want to consign. Mm -hmm power to you. But don't think that that one thing is going to magically fix it all, you know? Yeah. I mean, everything you've been saying is not about being perfect. It's just about figuring out what you can do, but not being harsh on yourself to be perfect because 
we don't have a perfect setup for people to be able to do this like 100%, you know, ethical in the most way. And things are so complex. Like you'll see people getting upset because thinner people will buy bigger, you know, clothes and then tailor it down, thus leaving, you know, less bigger clothing for people who might want to thrift who are bigger size. My younger sister, uh, as a condition of probation, I had to work at a Goodwill and she said that it was horrible there for the workers. But then in my head, I'm like, well, I'm going to go to Goodwill and like, I'm going to be a good person. And my sister was talking about sort of behind the scenes as (laughs) being court ordered to work there and how horrible she was treated. So it's like, you know, there's nothing is perfect, basically. Exactly. I mean, we're just operating in a system that's badly broken, you know, and so even just having these conversations, having more of an awareness that there are people behind our clothes and there are ways for us to amplify their voice and leave them, you know, with better conditions. I think that's a lot more powerful than trying to find that perfect thrifted outfit, you know? Yeah. I guess I just have like one, you know, kind of a wrap up question is, it's just like, should we be optimistic about this? That like now that people are a little more aware now that like we have great organizations like Remake kind of like making it easier to find the brands that are doing this the right way to put pressure on brands that are doing it the wrong way. Do you think that there will be some some real changes in the next few years? I am very optimistic, you know, and as someone who's been doing this work for a long time, one of the real reasons I'm optimistic is exactly because of conversations like this. You know, when we started, we were a tiny organization. We now have some 1,100 ambassadors up and down the country and globally. These are community organizers, you know, who are swapping and hosting conversations and film screenings and trying to really be a part of the solution. And that to me is really just the power when we come together, you know, and that we really are stronger together. The other thing that keeps me really hopeful is that policy is finally on the agenda. You know, for 30 years, the fashion industry said, we're just going to take care of all of this stuff on our own. You know, we're going to have voluntary codes of conduct and write these sustainability reports and somehow tell you that we're going to grow, grow, grow and take care of the people and the planet. Turns out that was not going to happen, right? (laughs) But as I look at this Garment Worker Protection Act, In California, as I look at some of the human rights due diligence laws coming out of Europe, there really is a recognition, really because citizen voices have been heard loud and clear, labor voices, that government has to step up because we as individuals can't take down this wicked industry. You know, we have to have regulatory reform. And so seeing that finally on the agenda is what makes me super excited about 2022 and beyond. That's awesome. Oh, good. We love to end the conversation on a high note (laughs) because it always starts off so scary. But like (laughs) there's there's real steps that can be taken. Yeah. And I couldn't be doing this work if I wasn't optimistic because, you know, being an activist is hard. And Mm -hmm. if we weren't feeling like we were having wins around the way and believing in humanity as a whole, then we'd get nowhere. You know, so we have (laughs) to stay positive and keep fighting the good fight. I love that. Would you like to play a game show? I am very scared, but yes, (laughs) let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. That's 
how we want you to feel. That's the right, that's the right way to enter into hypotheticals. Where you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm gonna give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you would just tell me what you would do in that situation. And then I pick my favorite answer. It's not a fair game and it is rigged against you. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of six months loves nothing more than a good deal. They go get a fancy $6 coffee every day from a flirty barista. And one day the barista tells them that they can either pay the $6 or give them a kiss for the coffee. Your partner decides that saving $6 a day is worth it and gives them the kiss. Would you stay with this cheater? Here's my question. What are they doing with the money they're saving? They're going to take you on a big vacation. Okay, Ooh. I'm staying. That was <laughs> I was like, either they're, they're buying me something or they're saving for like an engagement ring or something like that. And if that's the case, then I was going to stay. So I'm staying. See, you asked a clarifying question and that was so good. <laughs> you know what? I'm staying too because I'm confident in who I am. And, you know, a flirty barista and a kiss, that doesn't bother me because my partner's lucky to be with me. <laughs> what kind of kiss is it? It's a under five second kiss, but with a little oh, tongue. Oh. oh, that's interesting. You know, where are we going on vacation? <laughs> Disney World. Oh, I love Disney. Okay, I'm staying. I hate Disney World. The lines, the grumpy people. I unfortunately am a am a Disney adult, but it's cushioned by I'm a Disney gay, and I think that's okay. Look, I'm I have my little Nightmare Before Christmas mug. Oh, I had a weird childhood and now I'm stunted. So I will say I'm staying. I have a clarifying question. Is this person also kissing and getting free stuff from other people? Or is this barista the one and done thing? Well, once they establish this relationship, they start to think, hey, maybe I can get more free stuff if I kiss more people. So they've actually kind of started to offer that as a barter system for other other goods. Honestly, I've lived that life and I think it's worth it. <laughs> if we weren't going to Disneyland, I would have thought it's worth it, but I'm out because <laughs> I don't even like Disneyland. <laughs> I love that it was the destination of the vacation that really was the issue for you. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, we've got one relationship that survived, one that didn't. All right. Our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 15, doesn't want to finish high school because they have started a popular TikTok account and want to put all of their energy into making videos about wild sea animals. They are very popular. In order to not seem unsupportive of their dream, you make a deal that if they hit 1 million followers, they can drop out of high school and you will be supportive. They hit 1 million followers the next month. Are you a terrible parent? Are they going to get a GED? Not right away, but they, you know, that's always an option. How much money are they making? Well, there's not that much money in wild sea animals, um, <laughs> but they, you know, because it's a lot of conservation work, but they have had a few brand deals. And I guess you get you get paid per view on TikTok. Are they happy? They're very happy. They're really happy. Okay. I've stumped you both. I know. <laughs> I'm a good parent. 
I don't really believe in the traditional schooling system. And I don't think people have to like go through that or college to be successful. So whatevs. And I think my job as a parent is just to make sure that my child is happy. And so they're doing something they love. Animals need conservation and they're happy. So I'm a good parent. That's true. They are doing nice environmental work. Yeah, but they are selling some very cheap merchandise T-shirts with photos of animals on it. No, you got Aisha. You got her. (laughs) They're they're commoditizing the cause. Mm -mm. They're going to high school. I changed my mind. (laughs) I should have clarified that. (laughs) Slogan T-shirts are the worst, you guys. They're the absolute worst. And it's just always funny to me when it's like, oh, human rights, you know, slogans on T-shirts that were probably made hurting the animals or the humans. So, mm -mm. Okay, our final game is actually a brand new game (gasps) that we have never played before on JBU. Are you ready for it? Okay, wow. Would you stay with this liar? Ah! Would you stay with this liar? Okay, here we go. You've been with your partner for 42 years. And the entire time, they have bragged about what a great sailor they are. Unfortunately, you get seasick, so you have never sailed together. For your partner's 60th birthday, you have your doctor prescribe you some cutting-edge anti-motion sickness medication and book a sailboat for your whole family to go on. When you reveal the surprise to your partner, They admit they have no idea how to sail and made the whole thing up to impress you, including photoshopping photos of them on boats. Would you stay with this liar? (laughs) Why were they lying to us? Did they clarify, you know, (laughs) did we ask to be impressed (laughs) in some way? I think that it started off, you know, 42 years ago as like a sort of miscommunication where you thought that they knew how to sail and you clearly thought that was cool. And so when they were younger, they like, you know, they had maybe less self-confidence. And so they they sort of made it seem like, oh, yeah, I can sail thinking it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But then you brought it up all the time and wanted to talk about sailing. And so then it had to become this elaborate thing. And then they got deeper and deeper into the lie. And then they would actually leave for like a day to go sail, but they they really just, they went to Pizza Hut. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry. I just Googled 2021 minus 42. So this has been going on since 1979. (gasps) Oh my gosh. (laughs) And wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm about to crack this because I think they're cheating on me and I'll tell you why. Oh, damn it. Okay, I was going to say that Pizza Hut wasn't even a thing in 1979 so they've been cheating on me but actually pizza hut was founded in 1958 so they are telling oh. the truth was <laughs> an elaborate pizza hut. i crack it by discovering that pizza hut wasn't around <laughs> that's genius that's genius <laughs> i would stay whatever like this is so dumb i don't even <laughs> want to sail i don't even like sailing have they lied about anything else? Or this is the only lie. This is the only lie, but it was pretty elaborate. I mean, I give them points for creativity and I would stay. It's fine. You know, it seems quite harmless. <laughs> it's like an ego thing. I don't know. <laughs> Plus, I'm old. So, you know, what am I going to do now? 
What are you going to say to your whole family that shows up on the sailboat? I'm going to tell him, prepare yourself to answer every sailing question. Oh, and then I'll hire someone to be like the sailor expert. And I'll be like, it's because my partner wants to relax on their birthday. I'll help them with the lie. <gasps> You'll help them yeah. with the lie. Yeah. Oh, you're nice. I know. You're nice. Oh, my gosh. I'd make him fess up to the whole family as a punishment <laughs> for being such an elaborate liar. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I think that's the right answer. So you win. <laughs> wow. Yay. What do I get? Not merch, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. My pleasure. This was so fun. Where can people find out more about what you're doing and, and help support the cause? You can find out more at Remake Our World. That's our Instagram and our TikTok. And, you know, keep up with us on our platform. That's Remake.World. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about changing your name. between us it's time for topics xxxxxxx baby baby why'd you choose this topic i chose this topic because this is such a weird reason why i chose this topic because you know now john and i are living together we're, we're merging lives and like i had to call the vet to like get my my name on phantom's records because we switched vets and his name on and like sugar and all this stuff and I was like just thinking about like how it's like kind of complicated that we have different names I historically thought that I would not change my name if I got married but for some reason that like experience I was like oh, wouldn't this be easier if like we just had the same last name and then it sort of got me thinking about the future <laughs> and what it would be like to have separate names versus what it would be like to have the same last name and I feel conflicted about it. So I kind of just wanted to to open the floor for conversation. Do you like his last name? What's really tricky about his last name is that it is clearly not Jewish. And it just feels weird. It feels weird to take on a name that is not my ethnicity in a way. I think that that's maybe my biggest issue with it, if that makes sense. It's just like it feels like I would. But it's also this weird thing, right? Because I've also established myself in my career with my name. So it would very much be keeping my name for career stuff and then just changing my name for personal things. And that feels weird, too. Like, but maybe that's the right choice. Right. So like public facing, I'm still Allison Raskin. And then in like personal stuff, like with doctors, with if we have children and their schools, like with things like this, booking trips, all these things then we would have the same name for, for private life, which is kind of appealing. But yeah, I, I feel a disconnect from his name because it isn't a Jewish name. Yeah, it's interesting the way that we've built society around this. Mm. Uh, like my mom kept her maiden name. And I remember that causing trouble at school. And like I had a friend in college whose parents weren't married and it, it always caused trouble, even just like not even having separate last names, but not being married caused trouble for like, his doctors and school records and mm -hmm. things like that. So they eventually got married, not because they believed in it or wanted to, but just because it, he was like, they couldn't get, you know, documents for school and stuff. And so similarly, like we've built our society around like needing to change your last name and not even to the guy's last name, if you're a straight couple, but just having the same last name. 
Like I see a lot of stuff. I'm on this Reddit for names and I see a lot of stuff that's like me and my husband want to have the same last name, but it, it neither of our last names. Like we want to choose a new one for the two of us just in order to have the same last name and not be, you know, beholden to choosing one of their names. And I always thought that was really interesting. But it's so weird that we've like built society around needing to have the same last name. And it's also like, oh, okay, so I'm going to take on his family name, but not have my family name anymore. You know, like there is like this part of me that is like annoyed, annoyed that like it's often in straight couples, the woman that has to change the name. Like, I feel angry about that. <laughs> like, I, in my ideal world, we would have the same last name and he, well, and he would have mine. But there's weirdness around that. People don't rarely do that. They think it's emasculating. But I think it should be whoever has the better last name. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think we both like our last names. No offense to Josh Gondelman. But when I was dating Josh Gondelman, I was like, no way in hell am I becoming Gabby Gondelman. No way. <laughs> In hell is that happening? Even if I believed in it, get the F out with that. No. And then with me and Mal, our last names kind of rhyme. Mm-hmm. So like we, if you would hyphenate or whatever, but like Dunblum sounds ridiculous. <laughs> have you talked about it in terms of if you would ever have the same last name? Well, here's the thing. You got two non-binary people in a relationship. And so Mal has a dead name and their their real name that they go by. But on all their documents, it's their dead name. I have friends who are trans who have changed their names immediately, which causes taxes problems. And then they always have to put their dead name on documents still. And it's like this whole thing. And then it's super weird, like like if Mal and I are like flying or doing something where they need your name, it's like very strange to fill it out in this way. And they'll put the gender, you know, like just male or female. And then like we had an instance where we were flying and it was first class, not to brag. And the person came, the the stewardess came and she was like said Mal's dead name to me because in her mind, she has it listed like female and then, you know, whatever. So, and this would happen with my other ex, with my ex who now goes by James. People at one time, a person at a hotel just handed me James's credit card because they assumed it was such a female name. They assumed it must be me. And like that, I think is what's hard. So you want to like legally change your name because it's just like, and Mal has great, like someone will say, are you Mal's dead name? And Mal will go, I used to be it's like very <laughs> wistful way. But it is like it is really hard on trans people in some ways because the paperwork still comes up and all this stuff and people will just dead name you like left and right. And it's, you know, one friend of Mal's I really enjoy this singer, songwriter, musician named John Allison. I love that John Allison transitioned and make their, made their name John Allison. I think that's brilliant. And so it is this like, uh, to me, I'm like, now I'm like, yeah, John Allison's a name, like Mary Jane, like that's a name. And so uh, it just becomes more normalized to try to have these sort of mixed gender names or to have these more interesting, different sort of names. It, It is this hard thing because if I wanted to change my name, I'm like, I don't know that I could. And I check all the time, like, is this Googleable? Is this someone else's name who's famous? Like, I don't, you know, like, 
there's all these sort of complications. Yeah. And then Mal will be like, well, I want, I don't, I want to, I don't want to get married under my dead name. Like I want to change my name before we, you know, have like our marriage certificate. So it's like this whole rigmarole that then will probably cause them issues with, I don't know, Drew kept her name. Drew is still her same name. Sometimes she says she wishes she had changed it, but luckily Drew is gender neutral, but I don't know. It's like, it's, it's, it's sometimes that's why like people say they want to give their kid a gender neutral name to begin with. Mm -hmm. Have you wanted to change your first name? Yeah, but I'm also like, I'm so known by this. And also I have terrible taste. Like any name that I, I don't want to say it here to jinx it, but like any name that I come up with, I'll like run it by someone and they'll be like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) nobody is ever like, yes, that's good. People are like, like, well, Drew is very supportive, but like, you know, certain people will be like, yes, that's a name. (laughs) (laughs) It's like very into it. So I have a horrible taste. And also, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I've had my name for so long. I don't super mind it. There's like of two, there's two trans name things. One is you just make the other opposite gender version of your name. And then the second is you name yourself after something in nature. So it's either like your name is like, you know, Allison and you change it to Albert or your name is Allison and you're going by like Moonstone. Like there's no middle ground. (laughs) I'm sure there's plenty of middle ground, but I (laughs) it also just seems like they make it so hard to change your name. They do. I think the paperwork of it all seems really overwhelming and scary. There's two elements to it also with transness, which is changing your name and then changing your gender marker. So if you have a very female name, but you change your gender marker to male, the concern like we had, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but we had a real scary experience getting pulled over by a police officer while Mal was driving. And I think there were more problems because Mal's ID says female, but like, then it's like, you know, there's other things to consider. Like, so it's, so it's interesting with like, you know, certain people who have transitioned, changed their name to very masculine names, but then still have female on their license. Like it's so complicated and it, and both things are like complicated to do and cause reactions in other people. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like it's getting harder every day. I know it is getting harder every day to be a trans person in America, but I'm hoping that after it gets worse, it maybe will get better in some ways and that they can make these things easy, easier to do. Yeah. And also I'm not going to go by Dunblum. That's ridiculous. Or Mal going by Blum Dun. I mean, it sounds, it literally sounds like a disgusting sex act. (laughs) On that note, Melissa, you want to come on in and tell us what you're thinking? (laughs) Blum Dun sounds insane. Blum Dun is so funny to me. Like, it's like I'm cracking up at it. I love it. I think it's a great name. If you just combine it so it's just all one one name, Blum Dun. Blum Dun. Well, yeah. when we were joking about, like, when people were trying to come up with a ship name for me and Mal, what was the one they came up with? Ba- Baby Glum. <laughs> Maybe Glum. Oh I thought God. was very funny. <laughs> that is funny. Would you ever change your name, Melissa? I'm pretty attached to my name. If I get married, if I were to change it, 
then the man's name would have to be the last name would have to like start with an M because I'm just very attached to being Eminem. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> it's very much of who I am. My sisters, we all are Eminem. Aww. One of my sisters got married. Her last name is still M. The other one is W, but you flip it upside down. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Is your middle name Diamond? Yep. Oh, that's really cute. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's my great-grandmother's name on my dad's side. Oh, that's wow. so cute. Yeah, I don't know. My last name, I'm not attached to my last name and really because my last name just happens to be the last name of the last man that my May was married to, that my grandmother was married to. I'm not related to anyone named Dunn. Dunn is an Irish last mm-hmm. name. You know, my name through the years could have been Richer, could have been Meyer. There are t- just dependent on... <laughs> <laughs> who Maymay was with last. <laughs> so I like am not really related. If you did a family tree, like Dunn is not really, I'm not related to them by blood or anything. So honestly, my my last name from the man who's my dad's father is probably Richer. I feel more attached to Maymay's original last name or my mom's last name. So I don't know. It's like that, that I don't, uh, there's no like worry for me that I'm messing up any sort of family tree in a way because... But I, Pepe was an incredible grandfather. Sidon was the best. And so I'm honored to have his last name. But I'm not related to him. <laughs> I think great. you are. I think related means a lot of different things. Yeah, I agree. That's true. What do we rate this episode? I'm going to give it 30 out of 20 dumblums. Dumblum. It sounds like the Law & Order theme song. It does. It does. <laughs> the transition music. I rate it 13 out of 12 diamonds. I like it. And I'll rate it 47 out of 43 100% cotton t-shirts. Beautiful. (laughs) Well, thank you to Aisha Berenblatt for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at JBU Podcast, at Allison Raskin, at Gabby Road, at Emotional Support Lady, at BWM Pod, and at She Is Not Melissa. Also, Allison has a sub stack that's called Emotional Support Lady, and I'm at patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn. Bye! Forever! Yeah.